Presidential candidate Barack Obama told a group of students he took drugs and drank in high school. Good idea or bad idea? And we'll ask the author of the new book, Prude, what the sex-obsessed culture is doing to our girls and to the country. Plus, was Cold War-era Senator Joseph McCarthy a bully, a liar, or a sincere opponent of communism? We'll hear the real story. This is Jerry Johnson live from Crystal College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here is Penna Dexter. Well, it's a familiar sound. Some turkeys at a turkey farm. Have you got your turkey yet? Uh, Perhaps your turkey is there. Kaboom. You know, the Supreme Court is actually looking at a gun ban in Washington, D.C. You might want to go out there and get your turkey if you have not gotten it yet. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, happy Thanksgiving from all of us at Jerry Johnson Live. We're so glad you're with us today. I do want to mention that the next two days are going to be best of... Encore presentations here on Jerry Johnson Live, but you won't want to miss these. Uh, one of the interviews that uh, we will air tomorrow on Thanksgiving Day uh, has to do with the movie Bella. And uh, the producer, co-writer Leo Severino, uh, joined Dr. Johnson. And you may want to hear this interview, especially if you do as I always do on the Friday after Thanksgiving. And that is go to the movies. And uh, Bella basically with a very, very pro-life theme, a beautiful movie, is doing very well at the box office, and it was ranked number one on Yahoo, Fandango, and New York's New York Times readers' polls. Uh, it has... Uh, it's at number 12 of the box offices, but it's had a fairly limited release, although it is uh, getting in more and more theaters. If you haven't seen it, I saw it. I highly recommend seeing Bella. Uh, also, though, tomorrow on Thanksgiving, uh, the interview between, uh, actually the interview with Nicholas Wapshot, who wrote a book on Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, will also air. It was a great interview, another one we chose for tomorrow. On Friday, we will re-air the interview that Dr. Johnson and I did with William Federer. He's a historian, and his book was What Every America Needs to Know About the Koran. It was a full hour on Islam, and it, it was an excellent program. So uh, we are uh, airing some of the best of the next two days, and we hope that you will join us for those things. Well, on Thanksgiving, uh, my mom had a tradition. She would put a couple of pieces of popcorn unpopped at each one of our places at dinner, and uh, we had to, sometime during the dinner, we had to pick one up 
and talk about what we were thankful for. And then later in the dinner, it'd be our turn again. We'd pick another one up and talk about what we were thankful for. And uh, we want you to talk a little bit in this segment about what you're thankful for, not so much uh, in your family or your personal life, but something we can all resonate with that you are thankful for this year. Our number is 800 881-9270. Andrew, our, um, our producer, says his mom did it too, but they had five. And they have seven kids, so that's 35 uh, people saying, actually even more because of mom and dad, uh, what they're thankful for. So they were. Uh, it was a table full of grateful people, and that's what we want to talk about today on this pre-Thanksgiving program, and uh, we appreciate you joining us today. It's going to be a packed show. A lot of times the day before Thanksgiving, you can't get guests, but we've got plenty, and uh, I think you will enjoy that. Well, uh, here's a story about one of the bad girls out there. If you blinked, you missed this story. Lindsay Lohan has done her jail time, but it barely interrupted her day. In fact, uh, she never changed her street clothes uh, out of them. And uh, here's correspondent Rosalie Fox on that. Too many inmates and not enough room. Plus, her crime was nonviolent. These are the reasons Lindsay Lohan spent all of 84 minutes in jail instead of the one day her sentence had been knocked down to. That's according to a sheriff spokesman who says Lohan did not receive special treatment and that 30 to 50 women are released every day from that women's jail because of overcrowding. Why are we reporting this story? It's because we are talking about the influence of these bad girls. They are role models for American girls. And uh, this is pretty sad. Uh, Is this really where the women's movement has taken us? We've got this hookup culture today. We've got sex without commitment, without even a date, really. And there's a new book out that takes us back to some common sense thinking on this matter. It's called Prude. And that's uh, that's what I want all the girls that I know to be. Prudes. Uh, the author of this book is Carol Platt Lebo, and you won't want—you will not want to miss her. She's coming up next segment. Also, another very important subject, and uh, you know, this has to do with a senator from the 1950s era, Senator Joseph McCarthy. Uh, he's even got an ism named after him, McCarthyism. And uh, here's a soundbite from back in that era. During the hearings, uh, having to do with communism, of course, uh, Joseph McCarthy talked about communism, tried to expose uh, the infiltration of communism into our government. Uh, People criticized him for that, and they still do. Attorney, um, Attorney Boston lawyer Joseph Welch was challenging Senator McCarthy for some of his testimony in one of the hearings. Uh, And then Senator McCarthy challenged Mr. Welch to correct anything he said that was not true. And Mr. Welch, if, if I have said anything here which is untrue, then tell me. I have heard you and everyone else talk so much about laying the truth upon the table. Well, everything you thought you knew about Joseph McCarthy is actually wrong. That is unless you've read the research that's been coming out lately. Our guest, M. Stanton Evans, lays it all out in his book, blacklisted by history. We're going to talk with him later in the program, and I am really looking forward to that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there's another story out having to do with Mike Huckabee. We uh, teased it late uh, yesterday, but he's certainly gaining ground in the state of Iowa, which is the first uh, the first real vote, the Iowa caucus, January 3rd, and he is on the heels, uh, really in a statistical tie with 
Mitt Romney uh, for the Republican nomination there. Of course, the Iowa caucus doesn't bring any delegates, but what it really does do is give a candidate a boost. And uh, it's a big story in the Washington Post today that he is gaining ground and uh, gaining support. This particular poll says that most of his gains have been concentrated among the party's conservative core and from evangelical Protestants. Well, when you guys call in, it usually uh, and uh, and tell us who you support. Mike Huckabee tends to be uh, the one that many of you have called in and said uh, that you are behind him. He's surging in Iowa. Whether he has a chance for the nomination, well, that remains to be seen. There's another story out there, and I will take your calls in just a moment. Uh, but I want to bring this story out, too, because we also want to include this uh, in the ability for you to weigh in. And this has to do with presidential candidate on the Democrat side, Barack Obama. He was speaking to a group of students, uh, high school students, at Manchester Central High School in New Hampshire. And he talked about what he did in high school. He described himself this way. He said, junkie, pothead, that's where I'd been headed. Uh, And he talked about uh, what he did in high school. He smoked marijuana. He drank alcohol. Uh, And sometimes he even snorted cocaine when he could afford it. Now, uh, a couple of other candidates on the Republican side have had something to say about it. Mitt Romney says it's not a good idea to talk to high school kids that way. Uh, If you're going to be if you want to be the leader of the free world, you shouldn't talk about the fact that uh, you've done drugs. And now here you are, a U.S. senator, and you've turned out okay. It's better just to leave that stuff behind. But Rudy Giuliani had something else to say about it. I I, I respect his honesty in doing that. I I think that one of the things that we need from our uh, people that are running for office is not this pretense of perfection. And uh, the reality is all of us that run for public office, whether it's governor, legislature, mayor, president, we're all human beings. If we haven't made mistakes... Don't vote for us, because we got some big ones that are going to happen in the future, <laughs> and we won't know how to handle them. Of course, Rudy Giuliani says uh, he himself has made some bad decisions uh, that he's written about when there were and there were times. Actually, this is Obama. He said he made some bad decisions that he actually wrote about in his book. There were times when he got into drinking and experimented with drugs. There was a whole stretch of time when he didn't apply himself. He's telling this to high school kids. He said he turned his life around and he wouldn't be where he was if he hadn't done so. He does say that, but Mitt Romney says it's not a good idea for people running for president of the United States who potentially could be the role model for a lot of people to talk about their personal failings when they were kids. It opens the doorway to other kids thinking, well, I can do that too and become president of the United States. Rudy Giuliani thinks differently. What do you think? 800-881-9270. And also, what are you thankful for today? Let's go now to San Angelo, to Sharon. Thanks for calling, Sharon. Thank you. Um, I wanted to say that I am thankful for a little girl that I met today while I was doing my job. I was in an Alzheimer's unit, and this young lady, this little girl, came around the corner, and I said, Hi, are you here with your mother? And she said, No, I volunteer here about every day. And that was so heartwarming to me that someone so young has been taught to give of herself to people who probably don't even remember her from day to day in this um, extreme Alzheimer's unit. So I'm very thankful for that kind of a heart in that kind of a little girl, and I hope and pray that all of us will have that kind of heart. On another topic um, about the Obama statement, mm-hmm. I feel this way. When he gets 
if he gets to the, become the nominee, they're going to dra- drag up all kinds of things about his past anyway. And so it probably will come out. Those things are going to be said about anyone. Um, those things will probably come out in a very distasteful um, manner about any candidate that we put out there. Uh, we've had some wonderful people run for office. We have a wonderful president now. And, you know, they people in politics seem to make up all kinds of things about each other. So I feel like for him to say that, I would like to know what he said after that and before that. If he preceded it with, everyone makes mistakes, you can do better, you know, than I did um, after he said that, I think that's okay. If he was just... um, Do you think this was the best forum um, to, I mean... I agree with you that it's better to bring things out, and he already had written about it in his book, right. but to do it at a high school? Well, I'm not sure that, that's what I'm saying. I don't know the context of the whole thing that he said. If it's not in the right context, probably not a good idea at all. And maybe He wasn't even asked about it. He just brought it up. No, then I don't think so. If, he, if someone brings that up and he has an opportunity to say, because I understand that he's a person of faith. Um, It may not be the same as mine, but I understand that he's a person of faith. If he is a person of faith, and he's saying that in the context of, look, I've made mistakes, but God forgives, you can be forgiven, you can rise above the circumstances that you might find yourself in, that's one thing. But just to volunteer... Uh, something it can be construed as bragging, and that okay. would not be positive. No, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, <clears throat> we saw the video. Thank you so much for your call, Sharon. That's Sharon listening on KCRN in San Angelo. We appreciate your uh, input on both of those. It's a great story about the young girl volunteering, and uh, I think that's a great encouragement to all of us. It's something great about our country. Uh, but as far as Obama goes, we watched the video. It didn't look like he said anything about faith. He just basically said that you know he made a good decision at the end of high school when he got out of this type of thing. Uh, but it was the first thing he said. I mean, it was like, uh, I can relate to you, so I'm going to tell you about, you know, my drug use and my alcohol uh, use when I was your age. And in a sense, I don't think it's a good idea. I agree with Mitt Romney. You know, emphasize the good when you're with young people. It's not to say that people don't do all kinds of things and make all kinds of mistakes. But you're running for president. I think you kind of hold up a standard and you don't really major on the things that you did uh, back when you were making some uh, kind of sowing some wild oats when you were a young person. It's very interesting. Uh, Robert Novak, who's a longtime uh, political watcher, 50 year journalist in Washington, D.C., Uh, came out today with uh, sort of a warning that uh, Hillary Clinton's got some dirt on Barack Obama, but she's holding it for the purposes of party unity, her campaign says. I wonder if it has to do with this, and this is why Barack Obama is coming out with this. We'll find that out. We will be watching. Well, next up, uh, what about this sex-obsessed culture? What about the word prude? Is that what you want your young ladies to be? Our next guest will tell us all about it. She's written a book by that title, Stay with us. You heard the discussions. Because we've talked about a lot of the problems, but we want to transition now to practical solutions. And the solutions. Check their content, you check their conduct, and you check their converts. Now hear it all again, anytime. KCBI's Town Hall Meeting, The Battle for Truth, Beware of False Prophets. Nobody likes controversy, and yet there's some things worth fighting for. 
This exclusive presentation is available in a two-CD set. It makes a great resource for you, a friend, even a church library. And I think what we need to do is we need to preach the truth. To order, call anytime, 817-299-4247 and follow the prompts. I have no problem with people teaching that God wants to bless them. The battle for truth. But when it just comes to that one issue right there, you know, it's either put up or shut up. It's a month-long focus here on CRN, the Criswell Radio Network. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. Remember Donna Summer? That's her song, Bad Girls. And uh, the bad girls are getting a lot of attention lately, especially from our young girls. And uh, they tend to be role models for a lot of girls across America. We did the uh, Lindsay Lohan story a little bit earlier. Uh, But our next guest really laments that fact. In fact, uh, the message to young girls today is you've got to be sexy. Of course, there's this hookup culture out there that says sex without commitment is just fine. In fact, it's even good. Uh, for our girls. And the question is, how is this sex-obsessed culture hurting young girls? And also, how is it hurting the country as a whole? And with us to discuss this is Carol Platt-Lebo. She's written a new book. Uh, It's getting a lot of attention. Prude is the title, How the Sex-Obsessed Culture Damages Girls and America Too. And uh, Carol, thanks for joining us. Well, Penna, it's great to be with you, and happy Thanksgiving to you and your listeners. Well, same to you. And I might uh, mention, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know, you might want to take your little girls or your young kids out of the room. I'm not sure where we're going to go with this. Uh, But I really do want to talk with Carol. And let me just mention a little bit about her, first of all, because she is an attorney. She's a political analyst, uh, and she's also a commentator. And uh, she, I hear her sometimes uh, on uh, the Hugh Hewitt Show as a guest host. She does a great job. And uh, she's also a columnist for townhall.com. She attended Princeton and uh, got her law degree at Harvard. And uh, she was the first female managing editor, editor of the Harvard Law Review. So, Carol, I think you are uniquely qualified to talk about this because the women's movement was supposed to take us somewhere. And uh, in a sense, you know, the whole free sex part of it brought us to Britney Spears, Paris Hilton, and Lindsay Lohan, didn't it? Penna, yes, and thank you so much for your generous words. Um, yes, you know, that's what I find remarkable about all of this, is this idea that feminists have allowed to uh, infiltrate the culture, this whole thing, the concept that in any way that it's empowering or liberating for a young woman to act like the stereotype of the worst kind of man when it co- comes to sex. That is, engaging in sex as some kind of recreational activity like a game of tennis without any kind of a relationship or emotion or commitment or anything. And it's incredibly pernicious. And it, it really makes you wonder who thinks that these little girls are freer, happier, or more empowered when essentially what they've done is uh, is just learn to give too much too soon to too many people. Well, it starts young uh, because I read uh, several years ago that there were parents who were paying uh, Paris Hilton $100,000 to come and appear at their daughter's birthday parties out yeah, there in I mean, L.A. Is that the case? And, I, you know, it's amazing, and, and it, it's... Uh, Remarkable to find, as I talk about in the book, 
that team search unlimited one of the polling companies have found that paris hilton is one of the most admired figures for young girls and it's amazing we all know that something is terribly amiss what it is is the manifestation of a culture that sends young girls the message that being sexy is the most important attribute they can have more important than character or intelligence or talent or anything else. And, and it's just really profoundly sad. Folks, if you want to weigh in on this or if you have a question for our guest, uh, Carol Platt-Lebo, give us a call, 800-881-9270. Something else I've noticed. My kids are older, but um, there's always some kind of toy that's popular. And for girls, one of them is these Bratz dolls, and they do look like little Bratz. <laughs> and uh, some of them are dressed like little Bratz, too, aren't yeah, they? well, they're even worse than Bratz. They're dressed like little tarts. Yeah. Okay, uh, hookup culture. Now, this is where my kids, I've got college kids and out-of-college kids. And I have seen, especially on the, not in the Christian uh, universities so much, but in the uh, state universities, the public uh, universities, dating is out of style. They don't date. Uh, If they are with people, it's sort of this hookup thing. Right. And, Penna, I think you really hit on something there. And what I talk about in Prude is the fact that this has happened younger and younger, and the hookup culture has now managed to seep into high high schools or even really middle schools. And you have young women or young girls, really, I mean, 12, 13, 14, all the way, you know, the book focuses on 12 to 17-year-olds, but this kind of stuff happening in school auditoriums, in stairwells, in parking lots, in classrooms. And it, it makes sense, I guess, that the dating culture has been completely eroded by this, because as we all know, when girls set the standard for behavior, they do it not just for themselves, but they also do it for boys. And when the girls' behavior becomes coarser, so too does the boys. There's no more dating anymore because girls have made it clear in many cases the boys don't need to do anything in particular to quote-unquote woo them. The girls are around and available in every sense of the word, and the boys know it. Okay. Uh, t- you, you mentioned that the girls sort of set the standard for the boys. So since your book also talks about how this damages America, uh, let's. I've always said that you know when the women in the culture start dropping their morals, and and cease to kind of draw a moral line on a variety of issues, then you know that hurts the culture because they have a specific role to play. Now the feminists started to tear that down. So how is that playing out now in uh, 2007? Well, um, Penna, it, it seemed to me, and what I argue in Prude is that it seeps into the culture in a lot of different ways. But perhaps one of the primary areas where culture is damaged is for those of us who love freedom and small government, this kind of behavior makes it almost impossible for that kind of tradition to move forward. Because, you know, far from being liberating or empowering, when young girls go around doing this sort of thing and the traditional social, informal, non-governmental constraints on this kind of behavior, things like religion or the concept of shame or whatever else are undermined, you end up with a bigger, more intrusive federal government. You have young girls engaging in promiscuous sex, so you need a bigger public health bureaucracy to deal with the sexually transmitted diseases. Mm -hmm. You need bigger social services bureaucracy to deal with the children of these young mothers who are more likely to be abused and neglected, more likely to fight at school, to be a truant, and to uh, engage in early sex themselves. You need a bigger justice system to keep track of the deadbeat fathers 
of these teen girls and the, the sons of these girls who are 2.2 times more likely to be incarcerated even than the sons of women who are just in their early 20s when they have children. And so it really, in the end, undermines our freedom in a significant way. Well, it really does. And, oh, I hear a little uh, person in the background. That's I'm wonderful. So <laughs> it's, it's great because, you know, not only are you an attorney and a, a commentator and uh, a lawyer and uh, uh, <clears throat> just a, a brilliant lady, you are uh, also an author and a mom. So that's <laughs> yes, great. I uh, am. Our, our first Thanksgiving. Oh, well, that's wonderful. Well, you know, going back to this whole idea of what this does to the nation, I mean, dating's going away, and in a sense, uh, marriage goes away, and we do lose one of the big benefits, sort of the um, what Phyllis Schlafly's called the uh, Health, uh, Education, and Welfare Department. You know, it's much better than that. It takes care of a lot of these social ills if you just have strong marriages and strong families. Exactly. And uh, with this kind of thing going on with our girls, marriage is weakened, isn't it? It, it really is weakened, because one of the long-term effects of this, Penna, that I found as I was doing the research for Prude, and you know, I, I really did try and, and do a lot of research so that people couldn't say, well, who says? And that's why hopefully the book is entertaining and very readable, but there are 50 pages of endnotes so that anyone who doubts where a statistic or where a fact comes from can go and track it down for him or herself. And one of the documented effects of this sort of um, behavior long-term ends up being a, a weakened trust in men on the part of these girls and a difficulty forging intimate relationships with them. And that really does, I guess, Penna, if you think about it, make perfect sense because when girls engage in this kind of behavior, well, you know, like I say near the end of the book, sleazy behavior attracts sleazy guys. So it's very difficult to trust in the end when your experience with men ha has been with the kind of men who really are interested in someone who is willing to give herself uh, without thinking it much of anything to, to think twice about. Okay, now what about the backlash? Because there is a backlash. I mean, uh, I'm really sick of going into stores and seeing, you know, nothing that is modest in the whole store. Uh, you know, you can't find anything. And uh, we've got uh, some folks that are sort of pushing this new modesty movement, sort of a backlash to this. Uh, is that encouraging to you? It is encouraging because what it tells me, Penna, is that other people agree with me when I say that it is not only necessary, but it's actually possible to change the culture. And that's one of the things that I think is very difficult for people to believe because it seems as though this sort of stuff is so predominant, what can anyone ever do about it? But, you know, we have changed the culture in the past. It wasn't the government that killed Joe Camel. It was outraged citizens who realized that it was wrong to use a cartoon character to market cigarettes to, to little children or Mothers Against Drunk Driving, who very effectively stigmatized a dangerous activity in a very short period of time. Or even now, what the environmentalists have done very successfully in convincing businesses that it makes good sense for them to be perceived as environmentally friendly. You look at the detergent manufacturers mm -hmm. with their ever smaller and smaller bottles because they want to be able to tell their customers that they are green. And so when you have concerned people who are willing to get together and form a critical mass and insist on change, because we live in a capitalist culture where the opinions of consumers matter, change will come. Carol Platt-Lebo, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you two have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, we appreciate you and we appreciate the book. 
Well, Penna, I'm very grateful. And if any of your readers are interested in more information about it or how to get to the Amazon page or anything, they can check out www.prudethebook.com. That's P-R-U-D-E, thebook.com. And, Penna, you have a happy Thanksgiving and your listeners, too. You, too. That's Carol Platt-Lebo. The book is Prude, How the Sex-Obsessed Culture Damages Girls and America, too. Boy, it sounds like a great, great read uh, and also a lot of good information and research for everybody. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to hear a little bit about uh, the truth about somebody who's been maligned for the last 50 years. Uh, The book is Blacklisted by History, the Untold Story of Senator Joe McCarthy. The author, M. Stanton Evans, joins us next. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were for the moment unpopular. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night, and good luck. Well, uh, that is a recording of Edward R. Murrow and uh, his producer, Fred Friendly. They took to the air on CBS in March 1954 to challenge... Senator Joseph McCarthy and his hearings. Uh, he's talking about fear and fear-mongering. And, uh, of course, uh, that is what Joseph McCarthy has been called. He's accused of creating a bogus red scare and smearing countless innocent victims in a five-year reign of terror. Uh, he's remembered by many as a demagogue, a bully, a liar, a loathsome figure that even today, a half-century after his death in 1957, Uh, His name remains synonymous with witch hunts. He's got an ism named after him, McCarthyism. And uh, we're going to talk about Joseph McCarthy today. With us is an author who is really telling the truth that he has gleaned from tremendous, tremendous research into this issue. He is M. Stanton Evans, and he is the author of seven books and a contributing editor at Human Events, uh, one of the great uh, conservative newspapers. Uh, He's been a columnist for the LA Times Syndicate. He's been a commentator for CBS for the Voice of America. Uh, Really a longtime journalist. And uh, Mr. Evans, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Penna. Please call me Stan. All right, Stan. Well, I appreciate, uh, first of all, you joining us today right before Thanksgiving when everybody's kind of getting ready. (laughs) But also, the fact that you just called through documents and wire uh, uh, messages between the Soviet Union and the yeah. United States and yeah. just all kinds of information to get the yeah. real story that should have been told long ago, shouldn't it? Well, you've summed, uh, summed it up very well, Penna. Um, basically, the image of McCarthy, uh, you had that voice uh, over from uh, Murrow from that broadcast back in March of 54 and, uh, and everything since then, uh, you summed up very well that he smeared people, he made false accusations, he stirred up hysteria, fear over uh, a menace that was either very small or, or non-existent, and so forth. And that's been out there for about 50 years. 
But what you just said is now a brand new factor in the equation, which is we now have access to records that we didn't have back then that existed, but they weren't available to the public or to the press. Soviet records, of course, but also our own records. I spent a lot of time down at the FBI, uh, where a lot of records are available under, under Freedom of Information that show, in essence, that McCarthy was right, uh, that uh, not right as to the larger picture, that there was this very heavy penetration of our government by communist agents, Soviet spies, and so forth, but also that he was right as to specific cases. And let me just pick up, if I may, on that Murrow broadcast. They featured in that broadcast and, and then in the movie that George Clooney made back in 2005. Good night and good luck. Yes, about Murrow. Featured in that is the case of Annie Lee Moss. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. This was a black lady who was called before McCarthy, and uh, a witness had identified her as a communist. She denied it. It was then said it was a case of mistaken identity. The McCarthy staff had collared the wrong suspect and were sloppy in their work. And that's also been out there for 50 years, that she was an innocent victim of McCarthy. And that's what Murrow, in, in large measure, was talking about in the very... Uh, tape that you just played. Well, that's all phony baloney. Uh, she she was exactly what McCarthy said and what the witness said because we we know this because we now have the FBI file on her. I have it, and uh, I have a whole chapter about that case in my book. And that's just one example of among among many of the truth now coming out about stuff that was not known back in 1950. My guest is M. Stanton Evans. His book is Blacklisted by History, the Untold Story of Senator Joe McCarthy and His Fight Against America's Enemies. And Stan, um, you say that, you know, the information wasn't there then. Uh, but in a sense, there were already hearings taking place in Congress before yes. McCarthy started yep. bringing this stuff to light. So right. why was he received so poorly? Well, uh, you're, you're, again, very accurate in the way you sum things up. There had been many uh, uh, intimations, uh, uh, hints, uh, uh, evidence of this kind of thing before McCarthy ever showed up. The most famous example was the case of Alger Hiss, which uh, surfaced publicly in 1948 uh, and uh, uh, became a big controversy when Whitaker Chambers, an ex-communist, uh, said that Hiss was, in fact, a, a communist himself and a so, had been a Soviet spy, and this became a huge legal fight. Well, when that controversy broke, and I write about this in my book, too, the attitude of the Truman White House and Justice Department, and I've got the documents that show this, was to in, indict and imprison chambers to go after the ex-communist witness, not Alger Hiss, and indict Chambers for perjury and put him in prison. That was the mindset prevailing, and the reason they were doing that, uh, a lot of background, was that there had been, this was only one case among many, and there had been this heavy infiltration of the government during World War II and in the early post-war years, and the FBI had reported this uh, extensively to uh, high officials, the White House, Justice Department, State Department, and so on, Virtually nothing had been done about this, and so this was a huge scandal and would have been a huge political problem for the people that had let it happen. And so they were anxious to cover this up, shove it under the rug, and there are many examples of that. When McCarthy came along two years later, 1950, 
he blew the lid off that cover-up, and that's what made him so controversial. So he really rattled a lot of people's cages. Now, one of the people I want to ask you about whose cage I guess he rattled, because uh, the president, Harry Truman, certainly was an anti-communist. Yes, he was. But he did not support McCarthy. Well, it was a partisan thing. Harry Truman, he's a, he's a mysterious study. I, I'm not sure about Truman, why he did some of the things he did, but I, I kind of know what he did do. There's no question that Harry Truman was a visceral anti-communist. He didn't like communism. He was a good American, and no question about that. But uh, Harry Truman was really in the dark about what had been going on. He was vice president, as as you know, under Franklin Mm -hmm. Roosevelt, and he had been kept totally in the dark by the Roosevelt people as to what was going on uh, with these issues and just about everything else. Well, uh, that wasn't too good because one of the top Soviet agents in the government was an aide to President Roosevelt, Lachlan Curry. And we know this now from multiple records. So you had a Soviet agent sitting right there in the White House. Well, you can imagine, when Roosevelt died April 12, 1945, Truman all of a sudden has everything dumped on him. He doesn't know what's going on, and he's getting a lot of input from a lot of people that probably was not too accurate. And he never, ever, ever really came to grips mentally with the problem of communist infiltration of the government. If you look at what he did in the Hiss case, what he did with the case of Harry Dexter White, who was another Soviet agent, what he did in the case of J. Robert Oppenheimer, who the FBI knew was a communist as far back as 1942, all these people slipped through under Truman, and there are many others, and it wasn't that he was sympathetic to it. He just did not know anything about it, and he didn't want to learn anything about it. And finally, and I'll wrap up this answer, it was a partisan issue. The Republicans okay. were trying to beat his brains out on this issue. They were partisan. He was a partisan, and therefore he would not yield an inch on anything that showed they were right and he was wrong. And he was saying Hiss was innocent as late as 1956, and I have that in my book, too. Okay, M. Stanton Evans is our guest, and uh, let's listen to, we're talking about Joseph McCarthy. This is an exchange during the McCarthy hearings investigating the presence of communist members and sympathizers within the government. He was taken to task by Boston lawyer Joseph Welch, uh, Welsh for a lack of compassion with one of the witnesses. Here's that. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You have done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you left no sense of decency? I know this hurts you, Mr. Welch. I'll say it hurts. May I say, Mr. Chairman, as a point of personal privilege, I'd like to finish this. Senator, I think it hurts you too, sir. Well, the point I guess I want to make with this, and you can respond to this, uh, Stan, is that, um, you know, it was the person was made an issue, not the threat. Yeah. Well, that whole that whole episode was totally phony. Uh, what happened? I have a chapter on, in my book called "On Not Having Any Decency," and it's about Joe Welch and about various things he did in those hearings. Bit of background: the person being discussed was a man named Fred Fisher, who was an attorney in in Joe Welch's law firm in Boston, who had been brought down here to Washington, which is where I'm talking to you from. Uh, to help out uh, with the Army side of the case in the so-called Army McCarthy hearings. Fred Fisher had been a member of the National Lawyers Guild, and because of this, he went back to Boston, did not participate in the hearings. 
when in the in the the exchange you just played a, a, a clip from, uh, Welch had been badgering uh, McCarthy's counsel Roy Cohn about being extra quick about revealing any communists he knew about, any subversives. McCarthy, after this went on for a while, broke in and said, "Well, what about this guy Fred Fisher, who works for you, who is a member of the National Lawyers Guild?" And that's where that triggered what you just heard. All right, saying M. Stanton Evans is with us. Stan, can you stay with me a few more minutes? We are on a hard break. Yeah, because I want to finish this. Yeah, I want you to. Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back with more uh, from M. Stanton Evans. Also, uh, a little bit of a Thanksgiving story right after this. You heard the discussions. Because we've talked about a lot of the problems, but we want to transition now to practical solutions. And the solutions. Check their content, you check their conduct, and you check their converts. Now hear it all again, anytime. KCBI's Town Hall Meeting, The Battle for Truth, Beware of False Prophets. Nobody likes controversy, and yet there's some things worth fighting for. This exclusive presentation is available in a two-CD set. It makes a great resource for you, a friend, even a church library. And I think what we need to do is we need to preach the truth. To order, call anytime, 817-299-4247 and follow the prompts. I have no problem with people teaching that God wants to bless them. The battle for truth. But when it just comes to that one issue right there, you know, it's either put up or shut up. It's a month-long focus here on CRN, the Criswell Radio Network. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's Penna Dexter. The book is Blacklisted by History, the Untold Story of Senator Joe McCarthy. The author is M. Stanton Evans, and he is with us. And uh, I just got a hold of the book last night, Stan. And uh, so at Starbucks today, I was going through it, and um, I just didn't want to come to the studio. It was It is so fascinating. Well, uh, and I would say that, you know, for anyone, but if you live through... Uh, this this time, and if you were paying attention, which I wasn't old enough to be paying, I wasn't living through most of it, but uh, but I, I think this would just be so fascinating for someone that was actually paying attention to the uh, McCarthy hearings, and, uh, and then, of course, we've watched uh, over the years how he's been portrayed. But uh, pick up again on this, um, this uh, story about uh, the attorney Welsh. Joe Welsh. I will. Uh, let me ask you a question, Penna. You all are based in Dallas, right? Yes, we are. Okay. When all this was happening, I was a field hand for West Texas Utilities. Really? <laughs> Working <laughs> out of Abilene, over to Pecos, uh, down to Presidio, back to, uh, like, Fort Stockton and all that. I worked all over that. And that was the summer of 1954. That's when all this stuff was going on. So. Well, that's great. We actually cover a big chunk <laughs> of Texas and also think- southern Oklahoma. Well, there you go. Good, good country and good people. Mm-hmm. There you go. Okay, now, uh, back to where we were. Uh, this was a case, uh, not to recap it all, but where the issue was that McCarthy had brought out the fact that Welch's assistant, former assistant, Fred Fisher, had been a member of the National Lawyers Guild, and that was what Welch was going on and on about, don't assassinate this lad any further. Well, as I point out in my book, Fred Fisher had already been outed as a member of the National Lawyers Guild six weeks before this 
by Joe Welch himself. And have you got the book there, Pema? Yes. Okay, look at page 568. It's a long book, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> a lot of great stuff in it. Okay, I've got it, I've got it, okay, I've got there it. There is an article right there that I have re- photographed oh, yes. and reproduced from mm-hmm. the New York Times, April 16th, 1954, which is six weeks before Welch goes into this deal with McCarthy. If you look at the paragraph at the end, you'll see that Welch himself in that paragraph in the New York Times confirmed that Fred Fisher was a member of the National Lawyers Guild, which had been identified as a communist front, and that for that reason Fisher had been sent back to Boston. And also the New York Times, as you can see there, ran a nice big picture of Mr. Fisher, which is more than Joe McCarthy did. And so the whole thing was kind of an act by Welch, and it was part of a whole pattern of things that he did in those hearings. Okay, one more question uh, for M. Stanton Evans, and that is uh, fast forward to today because we're dealing with a different ism in this country. Of course, communism still exists, uh, but uh, cer- certainly was acknowledged that later that communists were a threat even within this country. Yep. Uh, but now uh, it's a different ism. It's Islamofascism that yep. we're dealing with. What are the parallels? What can we learn? There are a lot of parallels. Uh, uh, of, I guess the main one is that Back then, people were telling us that uh, this uh, being a communist and being a member of the Communist Party was no big deal. I mean, that had been said, it changed, and that just being a mere member of the Communist Party didn't necessarily imply anything bad, and I have uh, several chapters devoted to that. If you look at what happened in the run-up to 9-11, jumping way ahead, back to 2001, you'll see that part of that, there was the same attitude toward these uh, fanatical uh, pro-terrorist people. And what was being said was just because they're a member of some terrorist group or just because they're advocating terrorism, uh, it doesn't mean that you can deny them, say, a visa, because, after all, that's their constitutional right. So it's the same kind of mindset that allowed the communist problem to flourish back in the 40s and 50s that allowed 9-11 to happen, uh, in the, the start of this new century. Wow. It's the same thing. M. Stanton Evans, and uh, this is just a book that's uh, well-researched and uh, probably years in the making, blacklisted by history. I highly recommend it, and thank you so much, Stan, for joining us tonight. Uh, we'll need to talk with you further about this. Penna, thank you so much for having me on your show. Happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, wow. Good stuff. Uh, I want to go to a quick story. Uh, A poll was done, a new AP Yahoo poll. Uh, Most Americans, it says, are personally happy, but they're worried about the direction of the country. Here's the report. Our poll shows Democratic voters are excited, interested, and hopeful about next year's presidential election. More Republicans say the race makes them feel frustrated and bored. The key question about the overall mood of the nation, is America headed in the right or wrong direction? As of right now, probably in the wrong direction right now. That's Republican Bob Peters of Pocatello, Idaho, and this is Robin Valdivia of San Francisco, a registered Republican who plans to vote Democrat in 2008. Because all they're about is war, so I'm saying the wrong way. A majority of people surveyed and both parties say the country has taken a wrong turn. John Belmont, Washington. Well, this is Thanksgiving, and it's a time to uh, think about and talk about what we are grateful for. So uh, I will be doing that. I'll try to look on the positive side. Certainly there are ways in which this country is definitely headed in the wrong direction. 
But uh, there are a lot of things in which the country is uh, still a great nation, the greatest nation on earth, and uh, those are the things I think I would like to think about. You know, we've been talking about communism, and I think the next election uh, will determine whether or not we move in the direction of not communism, but socialism on so many of the policies that are being advocated by some of the candidates. And so it's kind of good to look back uh, to the uh, time of the first Thanksgiving, to the pilgrims, to think about one of the lessons that they learned uh, back then uh, when they had first landed at Plymouth Rock, and they had a very tough first year. And uh, one of the reasons has to do with an economic lesson that they learned. Now, they had been financed by a company in London uh, who basically paid for their trip uh, to come over here on the Mayflower. And this company owned all their property and also required that they operate a collectivist system here in the New World. So each individual would receive an equal ration regardless of how much he had produced. And all the property, as I said, uh, was owned by the company. The excess of anything that was produced didn't belong to the people who produced it. It belonged to the investors. Uh, the homes they built were company property. Now, this system failed, and, uh, of course, uh, many people starved. Uh, of the 103 pilgrims who arrived from England in 1620, 51 died in the first winter. So the lesson was learned. Because of man's fallen state, he doesn't work hard for no reward. And uh, the communist system is built on this type of a collectivism, and it doesn't bring prosperity, and it has failed in many places. We dodged a bullet uh, when we basically pushed the communists out of the government, out of the positions of influence in this country. The pilgrims, the leadership there, abolished that socialist system. They assigned every family a parcel of land, and soon the pilgrims had more food than they could actually use. They began trading with the Indians and sending beaver skins back to England. They began to get out from under their debt to this London company, and their governor, Governor Bradford, wrote, instead of famine, now God gave them plenty. This is just one of the lessons they learned and one of the things that was built into the Constitution of the United States. These were the roots of a great nation. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.